that's the way that our healthcare system is built though, right? Is for yeah. you to have multiple encounters with a healthcare provider and for you to come to them. That's the other critical piece in expanding mm-hmm. treatment access is that we have to figure out a way to take treatment to patients. We can't just rely on them to come to us. So, you know, mm-hmm. as a pharmacist, I in I would literally drive a bus around and pass out hepatitis C treatment if I could. Mm-hmm. Um, hepatitis C treatment, naloxone, syringes, condoms, like you, you load me up on a bus and I will be your girl to, to go <laughs> around to all the communities that need them. <laughs> My name is Courtney. I am the St. John's University APHA ASP Policy Vice President, and you're listening to another episode of Policy Podcast. Now, before I begin, I just want to give a huge thank you to everyone who listened to our very first episode with guest speaker Sarah Najuddin. You guys are absolutely amazing, and I hope you guys will continue to support this initiative as well. I would also love to introduce more people in this podcast just to sit, chill, and talk about policy and how we can take charge of our future profession. Now, Speaking of introducing people, I would like to take the opportunity to introduce my co-host for today, who is actually a member of my very own policy committee. So why don't you take the chance to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Sarah. I'm a third year pharmacy student at St. John's University. Um, So I joined the policy committee just to talk about the different policies, especially with what's happening this year, and just to have dialogue with other um, pharmacy students as well. And of course, I am so excited to finally introduce our guest speaker for today. She is a 2018 D graduate from the Virginia Common Health University, and she has completed APGY1, APGY2, and a master's program in health systems pharmacy administration at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. She has an ex- extensive history and advocacy on both the state and federal level and has held multiple policy leadership positions in pharmacy organizations such as ABHA and ASHP. Now her current advocacy work is not limited to her current position as policy manager at the National Viral Hepatitis Roundtable, also known as NVHR, but also through her social media Instagram page at Dose of Advocacy, which she has co-created. Let's give a huge Warm welcome to our guest speaker for today, Adrian Simmons. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super, super excited to be joining you lovely ladies tonight. <laughs> and you know, you're, you all are naturals at this. This is awesome. <laughs> you know what they say, fake it till you make it, you know? <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> so today we are going to be touching on a lot of topics. So starting from your journey as a pharmacy student to current policy manager, to important issues such as viral hepatitis elimination. Now, to get this podcast started, I want you to think back. So just think back to when you first started pharmacy school, or even before then, back when you were still deciding on what you want to do in the future. Why did you decide to become a pharmacist? And did you always know that you wanted to have a career in policy? You know, my, my journey to becoming a pharmacist is, you know, not, not much different from a lot of people, to be honest, but I will say that I didn't know that I wanted to be a pharmacist until well into my undergraduate years. And so as a middle schooler and as a high schooler who had really no idea of, you know, what a career was and certainly had no idea of what it meant to be a lawyer, in my mind, I wanted to be a lawyer. And so I went into, uh, yeah, you know, like so many people wanted to be a lawyer. I now am engaged to someone who is a lawyer and I'm more certain than ever that that was not the career choice for me. So congratulations though. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, uh, I ended up in the right, in the right space. And so, um, I went into college thinking that I was going to go to law school and 
the college that I went to didn't have a pre-law track. And so not only did I not know what it meant to be a lawyer coming into college, but there was really no way for me to figure that out in college either. And so my first year of college, I was planning to be a history major or a government major, but again, really still didn't have an opportunity to figure out what it meant to be a lawyer. And as a high schooler, I actually had gotten a job at CBS um, as a cashier. It was my first job. And um, I, as the story goes, the pharmacy was short staffed at some point. And so they asked me to come back and be the cashier back there. And I loved the atmosphere. And so um, I ended up getting certified as a technician. And when I went to college, I just transferred stores and became a pharmacy technician. Um, and so that was my kind of college job was working at CBS. And so again, I had at that point, no interest in science. It just by happenstance, I landed at CBS as my first job. And uh, I really had no interest in science whatsoever. And, you know, as someone who loved history, I had not taken a science class after my 10th grade year. I decided that I would never take a science class again until I got to college. And then I figured out like, I really loved my job in the pharmacy. And I knew that I, I wasn't going to have an opportunity to understand what it meant to, to go to law school before I got there. And it was really a huge financial commitment to make without knowing if that's something that you actually wanted to do for the rest of your life. And so I thought about it, you know, my second year of college, I was like, well, I haven't taken a science class since 10th grade of high school, but I'll take a science class. Um, and if I don't fail, then maybe I'll go to pharmacy school. And so I took that, I took that science class and uh, I, I very close to failed, to be quite honest, um, but somehow still decided to go to pharmacy school. And when I landed uh, at VCU for pharmacy school, I had never lost that interest, that initial interest in policy. I was really fortunate to get connected with some great mentors very early on in my pharmacy school career who also had an interest in health policy. And that person really is who showed me that I could do both. I could be a pharmacist and I could also be involved in policy and advocacy. And so through that mentorship relationship, you know, I was exposed to opportunities such as being policy vice president for APHA ASP. Um, and that's really where my involvement in policy and advocacy took off. And so um, I, I will say to answer your question, you know, I never thought that I would be a pharmacist, um, but certainly as I entered pharmacy school, I made sure to seek out opportunities to continue to fuel my interest in, in policy and advocacy from the very beginning. Oh, wow. That's actually a really interesting story because for mm -hmm. me personally, I didn't have an interest in policy or advocacy until entering pharmacy school because I, I knew that I wanted to pursue something more non-traditional, but I didn't know what that was. And that was yeah. kind of where uh, policy and advocacy came into my life where they're like, oh, we're kind of new and fresh and we're always changing. So it's actually Absolutely. really interesting. And I can tell you right now, the moment you said the word CVS, probably half of our listeners can already relate to you. <laughs> absolutely, <Me>. absolutely. <laughs> Including Sarah. Right when you said CVS, I was like, CVS. <laughs> I work at CVS currently, and it's doing pretty okay right now, you know, especially with all the COVID and flu shot season. Yeah. I ended up being a technician at CVS for six years, and when I got into to pharmacy school, I continued working at transferred stores again. At that point, I feel mm -hmm. like I had worked in every CVS in the country, even though it was only like <laughs> a handful of stores. And uh, when I went to pharmacy school, that's when I got exposed to hospital pharmacy. And so ended up getting an internship at a hospital and eventually left CVS just because I couldn't. At one point I had three jobs, which was like oh unheard of oh for someone also in pharmacy school. And so I had to let one of them yeah. go, um, even though I loved CVS. And again, it was what had convinced me to go into pharmacy school. Uh, I had to make the sacrifice. And so I left <laughs> CVS after six years, but it was, you know, it was an impressionable six years. And I'm sure that it's a very different experience now than when I was there at this point now, six years ago. Um, but it really is, CVS is what convinced me to become a pharmacist. That's, okay. <laughs> and like you have done so much during your student years, including working at CVS. And you also said that you had leadership positions at school, including being the policy vice president like me. Okay, so <laughs> it's just, um, how did you balance all of that during your school? Yes. 
Yeah. How did you balance all that? Because I, I have one job and I'm also at pharmacy school, but I, I don't, I don't know how you did it with three jobs. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's not for... something that I would recommend to anyone looking back on it. It is not something that I recommend, but you, you figure it out in the moment. And I, in addition to being policy vice president for APHA ASP, I was also president of a, of a really small policy organization um, at VCU that was student founded, um, student run. So it wasn't under the umbrella of any of these larger pharmacy associations. Um, and, you know, it, it gave me again, additional opportunities to get involved in policy and advocacy. So when you look back on all of my leadership development, experienced it very much was all in the policy and advocacy field was perhaps I should have been a little more well-rounded looking back at it but certainly there was no question uh, as to what I was passionate about and so um, I spent my first two years being uh, involved with that smaller uh, policy and advocacy organization and serving as policy vice president of APHA ASP and then I actually decided to go to a satellite campus my third year my third and fourth years, that was about uh, an hour away from our main campus. And there were only five students on that campus. And so as I prepared to make that transition, I had to be thoughtful about well, what are the leadership opportunities that I'll have access to by going to mm -hmm. a satellite campus, knowing that there are so many leadership opportunities while you're in pharmacy school, but there are definitely some that require you to physically be on site. So I knew that by being an hour away, I couldn't necessarily organize and run a patient care event, for example. Um, and so again, policy and advocacy was a role that I was able to adapt to being a satellite campus student because it didn't necessarily require me to be physically present, at least not very often um, on our main campus. And so I also began looking at opportunities to get involved on a national level at that point. When I transitioned into my third year, I had been policy vice president for a year already, and uh, I was fortunate to be appointed to the APHA Standing Policy Committee, um, as well as the ASHP Policy Committee. And those opportunities um, opened so many doors for me, um, not only just by getting to network with other student pharmacists across the country, but really getting plugged into the policy process at these professional associations. And so getting a good understanding of what does it mean to introduce policy into the House of Delegates for one of these organizations. Mm -hmm. But it also was a very conducive position to me being a satellite campus student because, you know, I was on a committee with, with students from all over the country. And so naturally we had to conduct all of our, our work remotely. Um, remote work now is like, you know, it's just a given in COVID universal. times, right? You, it's universal. You, every leadership position has now been adapted um, to be conducted remotely in some way, shape, or form. But at the time, it was pretty unheard of other than these national policy committees um, or in other committees. It was unusual for that role to be entirely virtual. Um, you know, I would encourage folks to, to be thoughtful about what opportunities you can get involved with that are even beyond the four walls of your pharmacy school. Um, and there are lots of opportunities out there, not just with policy committees. Um, many of the associations have, you know, committees about education and um, professional development that they're always looking for student pharmacists to be involved with. And so um, that was definitely one of the highlights of my pharmacy school career was getting to meet people from outside of my pharmacy school and certainly gave me a better understanding of the policy and advocacy space beyond uh, just my policy vice president role. When you were talking about mm -hmm. how you had to do a lot of remote work, I was just thinking like you're actually doing that really beautifully right now with your current Instagram page at Dose of Advocacy. Yeah. It's, yes. What I personally like about at Dose of Advocacy is that it provides concise like comprehensive information on current healthcare issues today. And I think that's so yeah. important because healthcare is, mm -hmm. it's already so complicated with like in itself mm -hmm. and just to be able to have a platform that breaks it down for us just makes it so much easier. And if there's one thing that I need to tell my listeners to do right now is you guys need to stop this podcast, jump onto Instagram, type at Dose of Advocacy and just 
spam that follow button because it is so look at so all good. of those posts you could sympathize with the post it relates to topics that are today like with COVID-19 and everything and with Medicare Part D and everything like very relatable yeah fortunately I don't get paid for dose of advocacy but if I did I would hire both of you to to help us market it <laughs> that was a great great description the the reason behind starting dose of advocacy was exactly what you just described right so to be able to take these really complex healthcare topics that in my opinion uh, every healthcare professional should be aware of um, and break them down into pieces of information that are digestible, but you know, on Instagram, it's also got to be aesthetically pleasing and to connect with our followers um, and particularly the people who may not have found policy and advocacy to be very interesting otherwise. And so we're trying to reach more than just the folks that think policy and advocacy is cool or interesting. We're also trying to reach people who have, you know, strictly a clinical interest, for instance, because these are topics that are going to impact their patients and that they should be aware of and, and hopefully even be advocating for. And so that's exactly the purpose of, of that page. I am super, super fortunate to run the account with my co-resident, Ina Liu. Um, she is a fierce advocate at heart. She is the, the graphics guru. She is the, the mastermind <laughs> behind all of the aesthetics of the account. Um, and it's just been a really fun way for us, to, again, to give back to, you know, the profession in, in a way that doesn't require, you know, a ton of time commitment, but also in a creative way. Um, I think both of us felt during pharmacy school and, and during residency that, you know, our system is built in a way in which you, in some ways, are pushed to be this cookie cutter pharmacist and pushed to think mm -hmm. about, you know, things in a very certain way. And, um, this advocacy account has been our creative outlet in a lot of ways. And so we, you can sometimes feel a little stifled, I think, in, in pharmacy school as well as in residency. And certainly you're very focused on um, getting the best clinical education you can, and you don't necessarily have all the time that you'd like to spend, particularly in residency. Um, even though I was really involved in policy and advocacy as a student, mm -hmm. I didn't do very much advocating during residency at all just because of, of time constraints and so um, this has really been a way for us to to get involved in the space again and and hopefully to be able to to give back to the profession um, in a very small way but hopefully in an impactful way tell us more about your role as policy manager in the National Viral Hepatitis Roundtable, which is a program under HEP, whose goal is to improve the health and underserved communities and individuals afflicted with viral hepatitis, and what your contribution was to the recent headline for New York, specifically to increase access to hepatitis C treatment for the Medicaid patients? Absolutely, I would love to. So my role as policy manager of the National Viral Hepatitis Roundtable is a pretty non-traditional one for a pharmacist. And so, oh, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. And so I, I always mm -hmm. love to, to tell people about uh, kind of a little bit about what I do and, and how I landed in this role. And so after I completed residency, uh, I knew that I was probably not going to end up in a traditional role as I was looking to complete a policy fellowship. And so there are a couple of policy fellowships out there, um, one of which is specific to pharmacists um, that is jointly funded by ACCP, um, ASHP, and then BCU, which is where I went to pharmacy school. And so I was aware of this program um, for quite some time. And when I wasn't selected for the fellowship, I, I really had to reconsider, okay, well, what does this mean in terms of my first role out of residency? At that point, it was March, and around the same time that COVID hit, um, the job market wasn't very great. And so as I'm looking for jobs, I was casting a, a wider net and came across a posting for a policy fellow for the Hepatitis Education Project. 
So I was reading through the job description and it honestly seemed too good to be true. And so they were looking for someone who had an interest in obviously policy and advocacy, but clinically in hepatitis, um, in HIV, if you had experience with HIV, in many of the clinical areas in which I trained during my residency program and that ultimately were my passion. And so I applied mm-hmm. for the job. They didn't, they weren't looking for a pharmacist, as you can imagine. As, as I mentioned, there aren't many fellowships that are specific to pharmacists. And so I applied for the role, really loved my interview. And, and they seemed to be really pleased with the idea that like a pharmacist was even interested in a role like this. And so I ultimately was offered the position and uh, they, when they offered me the job, they said, you know, your experience is, is really remarkable and a fellow title doesn't do you justice. And so we'd like to offer you a manager role, which, you know, that typically doesn't happen. (laughs) That was exciting. And I was like, well, of course, like here I am thinking that I'm going to be a fellow, which will just essentially be an extension of being a resident. And they've just kindly offered me a manager role. At any rate, just to give you a little bit of background about the structure of my organization and where the National Viral Hepatitis Roundtable fits in. The National Viral Hepatitis Roundtable is a coalition of more than 500 members of various sorts. So community-based organizations, public health institutions, such as health departments, as well as other advocacy organizations. And we all work together to ultimately eliminate viral hepatitis in the United States. And so NDHR is actually under the umbrella of a community-based organization, um, the Hepatitis Education Project, which is located in Seattle, Washington. And so in Seattle, um, my colleagues are providing lots of services to the community, such as hepatitis testing, uh, vaccines. They also provide uh, clean syringes to the community. They'll get folks connected to medically assisted treatment if they happen to be struggling with substance use disorder, um, as well as doing lots of outreach to the homeless community about how to safely use drugs and and not to contract uh, hepatitis and HIV. And so um, in my role as policy manager, I am in charge of all state and federal policy and advocacy across the country. And so I work with providers such as physicians and pharmacists, um, as well as patients who have lived experience with hepatitis to advocate for policies in their states that may be preventing us from eliminating viral hepatitis in the United States. So some examples of policies would include whether or not uh, syringe access is legal in your state, um, whether you have Medicaid expansion, um, whether you are screening prisoners on intake for hepatitis C, um, things of of all of these things that very much are um, related to our ability to eliminate viral hepatitis in the U.S. My role as a pharmacist brings a unique perspective to this role uh, because not only do I have clinical experience in HIV and hepatitis, but I also have administrative experience and lots of policy and advocacy um, experience that really allows me to connect with both patients and providers, as well as legislators that I'm meeting with to say, you know, these are the barriers that we're facing in practice. Um, As a pharmacist and a a resident, I certainly got lots of experience with things like prior authorizations, which continue to restrict uh, access to hepatitis C treatment. Um, I also got experience with things like 340B, which are very important to both the hepatitis C and HIV communities that that I work with on a daily basis. And so... A lot of that work is centered around uh, treatment access, namely to hepatitis C medications, which is where um, the recent news in New York comes into play. And so through our treatment access efforts, um, we work with a law center up at Harvard. And so it's called the Center for Health Law and Policy Innovation. So I work really closely with that team and we monitor the policies in all 50 states around prior authorizations for hepatitis C treatment for Medicaid beneficiaries. And so when we look at the policy landscape for hepatitis C treatment, patients are typically uh, denied treatment based on three criteria. And so the first is how severe their liver disease is. 
The second is uh, sobriety requirements. And so requiring that someone be abstinent from drugs and alcohol for a certain period of time. Um, and then the third is a specialist requirement. And so they actually will determine or dictate who is able to prescribe hepatitis C treatment in a particular state. Um, the restrictions have been in place uh, since the new hepatitis C agents came out around 2014. And they're in place because when those drugs came out in 2014, they were really, really expensive. And so we now know that with the new hepatitis C treatment, we can cure someone of hepatitis C um, in about two to three months. And so when that treatment came out, it cost about eighty dollars to $90,000 to cure someone. And so they put these barriers in place because, you know, as a state that's looking at my budget um, and knowing that the majority of people who have hepatitis C today um, get it from injecting drugs. And so there's certainly a correlation uh, between, and there's a, there's a significant population of people who inject drugs who may also be Medicaid beneficiaries. And so states took, mm -hmm. you know, looked at the price tag on these drugs and they said, oh my goodness, if we treat every person in our state that has Medicaid and is also living with hepatitis C in the context of this opioid crisis, when we know that there are a lot of people who have hepatitis C, it's going to break our state budget. And so they put these restrictions in place in order to limit the number of people who could access treatment. And so when you think about that, right, here we are as a provider and a payer limiting access to a treatment that we know will cure someone of a disease. Um, and, and knowing that it will, curing them will prevent them from, you know, having cirrhosis or perhaps even worse and going into to total liver, liver failure and needing to get a transplant or getting liver cancer. We know that we have a treatment that will prevent these things from happening, but because it is costly, we put these barriers in place to limit the number of people who can get treated. And so we've worked with state, and by we, I mean NBHR, we've worked with states to remove those barriers over time. And there are certainly some states that are better than others. Um, the big push in the, in the 2014 to 2015, all the way through 2017 timeframe was really working on um, the liver disease severity restriction because many states said, well, I won't treat you until you have really severe liver disease, which we know is just another risk factor to get liver cancer. Mm -hmm. um, but the more recent one, and again, in the context of the opioid crisis, has been these sobriety restrictions who discriminate against people that struggle with substance use disorder, requiring that they abstain from drugs and alcohol in order to treat their hepatitis C. And there are lots of issues with that, but we luckily have a great relationship with the folks in New York State. And over time, we were able to work with them and convince them to remove the sobriety restriction, which certainly removes a significant barrier to access um, treatment for patients living with hepatitis C. But just, uh, just a couple of months ago, New York State took it a step further and said, not only are we going to eliminate sobriety restrictions, we're going to just eliminate prior authorizations altogether as long as this is a patient who is being treated for the first time and you use one of the preferred agents on our formulary. And so this is a huge win in New York. Oh, and one of the first states to, to remove prior authorizations um, to that degree. There are certainly a couple of other states who have gone that route, but it's been uh, in conjunction with, you know, a, a larger plan in their state and then working with essentially having a contract with a pharmaceutical company to get a lot of medication for a really reduced cost. New York didn't even go that, they didn't need to go that route to remove prior authorizations. They just said, this is the right thing to do. And so this is what, this, we're going to do it. I, I do have a question. And um, just to add on to what you said, I do agree, because if there's something that I learned in pharmacy school, it's that preventative treatment of treating people early is usually more cost effective than actually treating mm -hmm. them when they're at their advanced stage. So Absolutely. What, I, 
I do have a question about that, though, because you said that the reason why a lot of these policies were in place was because of cost. But now that we're removing all these restrictions, how do you balance between paying high prices for these medications mm -hmm. while you're removing all these restrictions as well? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I failed to mention that the cost of treatment, thankfully, has come down significantly since these medications came out initially in 2014. And so now there are generics that are available. And so that has brought down the cost to, on average, you can cure someone what used to cost, you know, 80 to $90,000 in 2014. You can typically cure someone for about $10,000 um, in 2020. And even cheaper if you take into consideration things like if you're a 340B hospital, for instance, um, or if you live in a state that has, again, that contract with a pharmaceutical company that lets you buy a lot of medication for a fixed price. That being mm -hmm. said, $10,000 for a treatment is still a significant price tag. So while it's cheaper, you think about, you know, the cost of lisinopril and, you know, even HIV meds, we are mm -hmm. still looking at a pretty significant price tag for hepatitis C treatment. But to your point, and, and, and you explained it really well, this is really an argument of cost effectiveness. And so we know that even at $10,000 uh, per cure, we still know that treating someone early and the public health benefit of that person not spreading hepatitis C to other people, um, we know that that outweighs the cost of the medication. We also know that it's significantly cheaper than a liver transplant, which is mm -hmm. the only alternative if you yeah. uh, unfortunately progress to something like liver cancer. And so we know that spending $10,000 to cure someone, even you also hear the argument that, well, if we cure someone, they can get reinfected. And so we shouldn't, if they're still actively using drugs, then we shouldn't treat them because they could get reinfected at any point. But even, even if they get reinfected, right, um, not only should we not withhold treatment, again, knowingly, knowing that someone has a condition that we can cure, so we should therefore, as medical professionals, not withhold treatment from them, but also mm -hmm. even if we treated them and cured them three times, that's still cheaper than what a liver transplant will cost. It's just crazy because... I know that hepatitis C is actually one of the most infectious diseases in the world right now. And I think around 2.4 million people are affected by hepatitis C. So the fact that we have already so many, so first of all, thank God the price went down that now that more people yes. are able to get access and that more states are reducing the restrictions on it. But that's only one step of the way, right? Absolutely. There's more, more has to be done in order to fully eliminate this disease. And I do want to ask you this question. So as we all know, hepatitis is the inflammation of the liver. And there's primarily three types, A, B, and C. So we have vaccines for hepatitis A and B. And we know that vaccines, they're very useful in terms of eradicating uh, diseases. That has happened before. But for hepatitis C, we don't have a vaccine for it. So how is this step to eliminating hepatitis C going to work? Yeah, that's a great question. And it really comes back to making sure that everyone who needs treatment has access to treatment in a timely and affordable manner. And so that's the only way we're gonna eliminate a disease that we don't have a vaccine for. And so in addition to, to making sure that people have access to treatment, it's also making sure that we have sound harm reduction policies in place. And what I mean by harm reduction, harm reduction is this concept in public health is exactly what it sounds like, right? To reduce harm. And so there are lots of things that count as harm reduction. Wearing your seatbelt, for instance, to go to the grocery store, that's a harm reduction technique. Um, but harm reduction is also providing things like clean syringes to people who use drugs. Um, it's things like providing naloxone, uh, again, affordably mm -hmm. providing naloxone to people. Um, it's medically assisted treatment for people who, who struggle with substance use disorder. It's in the time of COVID, it's things like washing your hands and 
wearing mm -hmm. a mask, right? Like these are all harm reduction principles. And so not only do for hepatitis C, not only do we have to make sure that people are able to get tested um, and treated in a timely manner, um, we also have to make sure that we're giving them the tools to not continue to be reinfected. And so that, again, knowing that hepatitis C is primarily contracted via induction drug use nowadays, that's certainly not the only way to get it, um, but is the driving factor given the opioid crisis. Um, we have to make sure that we're giving people access to supplies in order to use drugs safely. A lot of the arguments that you'll hear from folks who, um, and, and states really, who don't have syringe access laws in place, they still make it illegal to you know, have syringes, clean or not, is that providing clean syringes to someone who uses drugs will incentivize them or motivate them to continue using drugs or to use more drugs. Um, or you'll also hear the argument that We'll, we'll end up with more needles on the street, for instance. Yeah. Well, we know all of those things aren't true. The reality is that people who use drugs will continue to use drugs whether you give them clean syringes or not. And so the least that we can do as a society and, again, as medical professionals is to make sure that we're giving them the opportunity to use drugs safely. Because ultimately, you know, even if you don't buy into the public health mantra of doing no harm and preventing transmission of a disease, at the very least, you can't really argue with the fact, the financial argument of if we don't give people the tools to use drugs safely, we're ultimately still going to pay more for treating their hepatitis C or treating their HIV. Mm -hmm. um, HIV being for life at this point, at least hepatitis C, we have a cure. The society is going to pay the cost of not providing people the tools to do drugs safely. I remember like a month ago in New Jersey, in pharmacies in New Jersey, they're handing out free Narcan for two days. And it, I think that was like a good policy to implement. I wish they had that like once a month in New Jersey or once a month in every state because people were coming in and you we didn't ask any questions they just asked for the Narcan we handed it to them we explained how to use it and that was it and I feel like it creates a safe environment for just in case someone does overdose there is like that emergency Narcan spray for them. That's incredible. So. I'm really glad to, to hear that that was happening in New Jersey. And, and I agree. I wish there were more places that, that did that. Mm -hmm. uh, believe it or not, it's still really hard in many states to get Narcan. Um, and even if you are able to just walk up to your pharmacy and without a prescription uh, ask for Narcan, you typically still have to have insurance. And so if you have a high deductible plan, for example, you could end up paying hundreds of dollars for Narcan, even if you know you were spared the, the hassle of going to a physician and then asking for a prescription and bringing that to your pharmacy. Um, you still may have to have, you know, pay hundreds of dollars in a copay just to get Narcan. And so there are lots of community-based organizations uh, that are able to give out Narcan for free in many states, which is fantastic. Um, and one of the things that I always think about as a pharmacist, as it relates to both Narcan and giving out syringes, um, is mm -hmm. while it's really great for people to be able, you know, we talk about how accessible pharmacies are, right? Like 90, more than 90% of people live within five miles of a pharmacy. You hear that all right. the time, right? <laughs> and that's all great. And it's great if your state allows your pharmacy to dispense things like syringes and Narcan without a prescription. But coming to a pharmacy is still another barrier for someone who uses drugs, right? Mm -hmm. Imagine having, uh, imagine struggling with substance use disorder and still having to make your way to a pharmacy to get the things that you need in order to be safe in your day-to-day, -day, in your day-to-day -day life. And so- mm -hmm. I always, you know, I've, I've worked with pharmacists even who, even in states that allowed people to buy syringes, for instance, without a prescription at a pharmacy. Um, I've worked with pharmacists who philosophically didn't believe in providing clean syringes to people who use drugs for the, for the, for the reasons that I've named, right? So their, their philosophy was that that was um, just condoning drug use. 
And so someone would come into the pharmacy and they would ask to buy syringes and it would need to be sold by the pharmacist and they would require them to have a prescription for insulin in order to purchase syringes. And I always thought about that, right? If there, this, imagine the number of barriers that this person has overcome just to walk through my pharmacy doors. Um, I, as a pharmacist, should not be another barrier to that person wanting to use drugs safely. Because again, knowing that people who use drugs will use drugs, whether you provide them clean syringes mm -hmm. or not, um, me standing in the way of them doing that safely is only doing harm to public health, to the rest of society, mm -hmm. because that person ultimately will have no choice but to go use a dirty syringe or to share a needle with a friend who may unknowingly be infected with hepatitis C or with HIV. Um, and then again, we end up bearing the cost of that as a society in, in the long run. So I, I wish that things like syringes and naloxone were more readily available than, the, than even a pharmacy. Um, I am of the opinion that you know, community organizations, I should be able to, people should be able to walk down the street and just hand out syringes and naloxone. Mm -hmm. And we should give community-based organizations free syringes and free naloxone in order to do that. Because at the end of the day, those are the people that know where people who use drugs are. They know where to find them. And people who use drugs are comfortable with, with people that work at community-based organizations. They have, unfortunately, people who use drugs continue to face a, an immense amount of stigma from healthcare providers, including from pharmacists. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's no wonder that they don't want to come to a pharmacy to get naloxone or syringes, even if they could get it for free. Um, but certainly if the trust isn't there, then they're not going to come to your pharmacy to access that care anyway. So mm -hmm. basically people are going to be, if they're an IV drug user, they're going to be using their drugs, whether we hinder them or not. So in order to help with hepatitis elimination, we might as well help them by preventing one thing, which we know we can help them with, which is eliminating the transmission of diseases such as HIV and hepatitis C. So I really think it's that mm -hmm. stigma that hinders a lot of people, that discourages people from receiving help from pharmacists. And I like how you mentioned that because that's actually one of the things that us student pharmacists can think about when we head on to uh, our practices in the future and how we can help our patients as well. So. Yeah, it's, it's something that I like to keep in mind when I'm talking to student pharmacists and even to other practitioners is not to forget that stigma is still something that is very real and that is faced every day by people who use drugs, by people who are experiencing homelessness, and that we can inadvertently contribute to that stigma. I don't think it's intentional. I like to assume positive intent for everyone, right? I don't think that most people are intentionally stigmatizing those groups, but I think that there are lots of things that contribute to why you might inadvertently stigmatize them. It could be your own upbringing. It could just be mm -hmm. a, a general discomfort, right, with the idea of someone using drugs if that's not something that you have personally experienced. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, as a healthcare provider, our responsibility is to provide care to all patients. Um, it's not our place to judge their behaviors mm -hmm. and their actions. Um, we're supposed to be there to help them. And we're supposed to help them regardless of what those actions might be. And so um, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done as it relates to, to stigma. And it's not unique to pharmacists. I think that physicians and nurses and other healthcare professionals um, are also a source of stigma in many ways. I also think it could be like a sign of the times too, because different generations, like I know my parents' generation, they didn't grow up around like drugs and like drug advocacy and stuff like that. So when they see someone on drugs, they automatically just have a bad stigma around them. But I know with my generation, we grew up with more, obviously more education, more advocacy for drug like rehabilitation programs. So I know like we're fine with it and we could 
go up to the person and educate them on like drug use and even help them out because if they're still going to use drugs you might as well help them out in the process like you said you might as well offer them like clean options if they were to continue their drug use as opposed to just judging them because that judgment's not going to help either way exactly exactly mm-hmm. So if you could take the opportunity right now to share one more message to student pharmacists and pharmacists right now on how we can help with eliminating viral hepatitis, what would you say? I would tell pharmacists and and student pharmacists to remember that we are in a really unique position and quite frankly, a privileged position to be able to impact the elimination of viral hepatitis in the United States. If you ask me, pharmacists are the magic bullet for viral hepatitis elimination. Not only is treatment extremely, extremely effective, but it's very simple. In an ideal world, we would be performing hepatitis tests in our community pharmacies. We would be starting people on treatment that same day that we test them. We can, whether that's through a collaborative practice agreement with a local physician or through a standing order in your state, um, treatment is that simple that it should be, we should get to a place in which you can walk into your community pharmacy and get tested and treated for hepatitis C. Um, the other thing though, again, is, is not to forget how harm reduction goes hand in hand with treatment access and what role pharmacists and student pharmacists can play in making sure that people have access to the various harm reduction strategies that are critical to making sure that we're able to eliminate this deadly virus um, in our community. It won't get better until we make a concerted effort to eliminate it. And that's going to require all hands on deck. It's not just a single healthcare provider. It's not just our infectious disease physicians or hepatologists. It's not just our primary care physicians. We are in the middle of an opioid crisis and have been for some time now. And the, unfortunately, there's no end in sight because we're also in a pandemic and we know that overdose deaths have, have increased. And so I hope that, that pharmacists and student pharmacists will reflect on the ways in which they're able to contribute to viral hepatitis elimination um, and also to reflect uh, on the ways in which they might be contributing to uh, people living with hepatitis C not wanting to seek care, whether it's you know, from a pharmacist or whether it's from their physician, um, thinking about the ways in which we can encourage people and empower people to seek care. Um, again, ideally in a pharmacy, because I think Treatment is simple enough that we could be those providers, but certainly we can't do it uh, if the stigma persists as it does today. That is all for our podcast for today. Now, first of all, thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much for co-hosting this podcast episode with me. You did really good. You should be proud of yourself. (laughs) I also want to give a huge shout out to Sen. Unfortunately, he could not be here today, but he was one of the producers that helped a lot with this episode. So shout out to him. And of course, Adrian, thank you so much for coming today. It is honestly people like you that just do what you do and inspire people and students like me that allows us to continue to think about our society's problems and think about ways that we can prove them for the future as well. So thank you so much for coming. Do you have any final thoughts that you want to share with our listeners? Thank you so much for having me. I have enjoyed this so much and I hope to be able to chat with you all again in the future. You know, if I had to leave our listeners with one or or two things, it would be to keep in mind that getting involved in policy and advocacy can look like a lot of things. And so if you're listening to this and perhaps you're intimidated by the idea of getting involved with policy and advocacy, or maybe you just aren't interested in politics, right? Because with policy comes politics. Keep in mind Mm -hmm. that as a pharmacist, 
you can play a role in policy and advocacy um, in many different ways. And it can look like what I'd like to call everyday advocacy. So it could be, you know, if you're working in a community setting, it could be making sure that your patients have access to the medications that they need and, and spending those long hours on the phone with insurance companies. In the hospital setting, it can look like, you know, having those uncomfortable conversations on rounds when you and the rest of the medical team perhaps aren't on the same page about what you think the plan should be for a particular patient's care. Um, that is also a, a form of advocacy. But if you want to take it to the next level, um, I would encourage you to think about the ways in which you can give back to your community, um, no matter how small or how big that might be. It could be something as simple as, you know, reaching out to your legislator, which is as simple as sending a quick email to let them know how a particular policy might impact the patients that you care for. Um, it could be attending a, a day on the Hill, at least when we're not in COVID times anymore and we actually get to go back to Capitol Hill. It could also just be, you know, being an individual advocate for a particular patient who might be getting their treatment denied for one reason or another from their insurance company and, and walking them through that process and, and letting them know that they have someone that they can trust and that someone that will advocate for them um, along this really, really complicated process of navigating healthcare in the United States. And so there, again, for whether you're super, super interested in policy and you want to at some point, you know, write policy yourself or you want to be in a total policy role like I'm in uh, as a, a non-traditional pharmacist, or if, you know, you just want to get involved in policy and advocacy here and there, there's a role for you. Um, and I would encourage you to reach out to your colleagues, particularly that are involved in your professional associations. And I am confident that they can find um, a role for you in their organizations. Thank you so much for that message. Thank you. And Thank I really think that, that it, yeah, it definitely sends the message that you, it doesn't matter who you are, how old you are, um, your ethnicity or the color of your skin, anyone can advocate as long as they have the motivation to do so. So thank Absolutely. you so much for that message. Um, please, like I said before, pause this video, jump onto Instagram and spam yes. that follow <laughs> button on at Dose of Advocacy. Like I said before, it is super amazing. Please also check out our own Instagram page at APHAASPSTU and our Facebook page, St. John's University APHAASP. And also feel free to catch up on our other policy podcast episodes by searching on Spotify, the Student Pharmacist Policy Podcast. Thank you all so much for listening and I'll catch you in our next episode. Bye. This is